Greetings, travelers! Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with your animal companions, Fox and Sparrow. Hello, and happy February, I guess? We're midway through February, and I was gonna say happy Valentine's Day, but I realized when this episode comes out, it's like way past Valentine's Day, so... Um, happy Black History Month, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think historically we've always done like a lover's episode or some kind of romantic one. Mm-hmm. So if you are craving some love still, you can go and check those out. But we will not really be doing that for this episode. We love love, but we also love variety. <laughs> yes. And we have tons of lovers ones. So if you're interested in anything from Persian folklore, um, African, we have, I think there's one from Japan. There's tons of stuff to look at. So do go onto the website or onto just our, cata- our catalog. What do you call podcast episodes? You can go through our episode list. You can also check out our website where um, we'll have posts. Maybe we can include a couple of those episodes listed at the top of this week's show notes. Like kind of like if they want some alts. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's a number of them in there if you kind of go looking. Uh, there's a lot of good love stories in these fairy tales. Um, okay, so this month, uh, as I think we've mentioned before, is my birthday month. So my birthday has come and gone. And um, as kind of my birthday gift to myself, I got myself like a new game because let's be real, pretty much all I do is play video games is what I'm learning when I do all these updates of what I'm into (laughs) is I'm always just playing a new game. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I feel the same whenever we talk on these. I'm just like, here's a game we're playing or here's a book we're reading or here's a show we're watching. And I'm like, um, we should maybe go outside. (laughs) (laughs) Nah. Um, well, you talked about skiing. I went skating this weekend. That was an outdoor thing. Ooh. I haven't skated since I was a child, so that was really interesting. I really was afraid I was going to fall, and then and then I didn't. It's really an exciting story. <laughs> Did your school not do those, like, skating weeks where there were just, like, old skates and donated skates just in the hallways, and then you went and got size, and then we went, ska- like, skating every afternoon? No, my uh, my parents taught me how to skate. Like they had, we had a rink somewhat near nearby, so we went once in a while, but like not often. Like no one was really big into it in my family, so it was like something to learn how to do. Oh, no one taught you at school. They gave you skates and told you to get on the ice. That was it. Here's blades. Have fun, kids. No, literally, that's that's exactly what it was. I think the the rich kids went skiing because the skiing holidays at my school they were like thousands of dollars to go. Actually, I think in my mind it was thousands of dollars, but I'm not quite sure exactly how much it was. It could have been like 500 or something. But to me, as a child, that was like thousands of dollars. It's a lot. But I know some kids went skiing and then the rest of us went skating. But I mean, I don't think there were any lessons for the skiing kids either. It's just very much like, can you ski? Great. You're allowed to come on this trip. Can you not ski? Hmm. Dang. Go down the mountain anyway. If you can, if you can pay for the skis and stuff, then here you go. Straight down. Have fun. Try not to die. But at least your parents taught you and they didn't just throw you onto the ice. Yeah, no, my dad was very much into uh, teaching us these types of things. He was That's really good. into like hockey as a kid. You know, very classic Canadian, right? <laughs> yes. Anyways, so I need to do more of that stuff. I did it once this weekend mm-hmm. and then I immediately came home and played the game I got myself for my birthday, <laughs> which was uh, a, co- a game called Steam World Build. And so SteamWorld Build is like an addition into the SteamWorld series. If you've never played these games, they're 
they're all these indie games, so you can get them for like relatively decent prices because they're indie and they're great. But like pretty much every time the studio comes out with another Steam World game, they pretty much create a new, like a completely different type of game. So like the first two games in the series were Steam World Dig and Steam World Dig Two, and those were like mm-hmm. Metroidvania games. Uh, so like side scroller um type deals, and then uh. And then the next game they came out with was like Steam World Heist, which was this shooter, side-scrolling shooter game, which was like completely different mechanics, which was like more of like a chess game, honestly. It was like all this tactical stuff. And then the next game they came out with was Steam World Quest, which was a deck building game. That's completely different. But they all have like the same type of humor in it, which is really just like mm-hmm. really cutesy humor, which I enjoy. And it's like it there's like a greater overall narrative of the world. Like we'll follow one or two characters for each game, but then they just go off and do their thing and the next game will have a whole new cast of characters. But like there is a bigger overall lore that's happening in the world at large, which is very interesting, which is fun to to see. Um so SteamWorld Build is like a Sim City game, so completely different from mm-hmm. everything else. It was a lot of fun, but it's also super short. Yeah, just a really cute game. I highly recommend those games if people are looking for just like small bite size, especially SteamWorld Dig 2. It's that one was like the best in terms of like gameplay and story. It was very fun. I won't go into it more cuz I don't want to take up too much time geeking out on these games. Oh yeah. <laughs> we do end up taking too much time explaining what we're doing. In the interest of keeping things on track, I'm going to leave it there. I could talk a long time about them, but it's very fun. Uh Fox, what are you into these days? Um, I'm still very much into crafting. I have been doing um, my Legos. So I got the wildflower set, I think, for my birthday. No, for Christmas. And then I got the cactus succulent set for um, my birthday. And then Sparrow graciously has gifted me the orchid set. So now I have another Lego set. Um, And it was very serendipitous because I had just finished my cactus one because I had left the last... Uh, kind of like pot and flower for the very um like towards the very end of the month towards like well I had left it because I wanted to kind of spread it out for as long as possible because that one wasn't very long and then the night I finished it the next day in the morning I got my orchid set so I was like yes I have something else to build <laughs> and then I also have a book nook that I have to build and those are one of those wooden ones that you have to just spend ages just taking the pieces out and then building them and gluing them so that's next and then I've also been doing there like they have these lessons online called um like geometric islamic painting or like art and it's all about math but how you use like protractors and rulers and basically very precise measurements to make art and so I've been doing a bit of that with um watercolors and with pastel so that's been fun I've never I I messaged my husband and I was like I never thought I would message you this but do we own a compass (laughs) like you know where you put your pen and then like you go around and he said yeah I'm sure we have one like somewhere and I was like okay because I had the protractor I had the okay I don't know what it's called but you know the full protractor where it's just like a circle I'm not sure if it's just a protractor I don't know what it's called but I had that I had the triangular one um I had my rulers I had my compass it was then I had like 
a paper which is like the cal- the different measurements I needed because I like because when you follow along these tutorials they have like the measurements you need to make each so it has to be very because um, it's symmetrical you're supposed to give the illusion of symmetry so you have to make every piece look the same mm. um so it was a lot of drawing and then erasing and then remeasuring and then because if you get one thing wrong it doesn't look a hundred percent the same yeah so and then eventually I gave up and I drew grid lines and then I did it that way because the instructor had said, you know, you could do the grid lines, but it takes ages to actually make the grid lines first and then do it. But I was like, no, I don't need to. And then and then you need them. Well, because it's so much easier to count things and make sure everything's precise, because I feel like for the students who didn't really care if it was precise, they could just kind of do whatever. But I'm a bit of a perfectionist. You could have also gotten graph paper. No, because it's on um, it's on watercolor, like it's on the actual cardstock. Oh, like the, okay. Like it's on actual, not canvas, but I have a watercolor book because you need to be the thick material because um, mm. it has to be really good quality because you're erasing all the lines that you don't need at the end. And if you do that on graph paper or you do that on like regular paper, it just looks really messy. So we had to use proper art paper. So... That was fun. I got to pull out my watercolor book that I bought last year and just haven't used. <laughs> so yeah, I've just been doing crafty stuff and stuff with my hands. That sounds really fun. I have never done that type of thing before. I'm not as like, I like some artsy stuff, but like the artsy stuff I like is like drama and like story writing. I don't, I've never been good at the, the physical crafting of things. I'm like, what's this? What's happening? <laughs> Why is there glue everywhere? I love all of it. I love just all forms of the arts. I'm going to start dabbling in music, but I think I'll wait next till next month. I'll make physical art this year and then I'll do the guitar and the piano next year because we own both of those things. We just, I just think of them as decor pieces. (laughs) (laughs) It's really fun. I love this idea of like, you'll just take on a different type of art every year and be like, this is what I'm doing this year. Why not? It's been rainy. It's been grim. Um, because I've been so sick, like I've just been chronically ill this entire year slash December. So I haven't been able to focus a lot on things. So I can't really be on my computer for too long, um, which makes work very difficult. But I use up all of like the, the strain of that, like when I'm working. Mm -hmm. So when I'm not working, I try and do other things. And I found that reading is also a bit difficult because I can't really focus. So it might be long COVID. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so it's been a bit of everything. So I've been really trying to just keep myself engaged with things with my hands and my body to keep standing up, to keep doing things. So I'm not just, you know, staring at a screen all day or staring at my phone. So I can just kind of give that stuff a rest. Fair enough. And in the interest of not staring at my computer for hours <laughs> and hours, uh, let's jump into the story here today. So... There is a little bit of a disclaimer for this one because I know a lot of our listeners are not from Canada or the United States, but in Canada, the United States, and I think maybe the United Kingdom, I don't know, I don't think so, but um, we have different months that we celebrate different um, groups of people or different things or different illnesses. So we do have like, you know, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, we have um, Indigenous Peoples Month. So we have specific months where we celebrate things, basically. And I think it's becoming more international as we have social media. And since, you know, the United States is such a big powerhouse where lots of companies and stuff are based, 
when they do these celebrations, it kind of goes over all of their social media platforms. And so it raises lots of awareness for these months. And specifically, February, we celebrate Black History Month with an emphasis on learning about the slave trade, the Underground Railroad, the civil rights movements. So we do a lot of that in school. And I think once you leave school, it does kind of die down. Um, the amount of awareness we see besides social media and ads and stuff like that. But on this podcast, we do want to bring you a wide range of stories from all over the world. And while we have covered North American native tales, we have not really covered any African-American stories. And these are more stories that are uniquely American because Mm -hmm. while they do take aspects of the, you know, the slaves, their native countries where they came from, it becomes kind of a melting pot. So African-American folklore and fairy tales are a unique branch of storytelling just resulting from the wide-ranging Black diaspora. From a diaspora myself, it just means that, you know, people who've been taken away from their native country or they've moved away from their homeland and they've set up roots somewhere else. Um, And so despite being rich in folklore, African-American storytelling traditions were often ignored by scholars of the period. They didn't see it as worthwhile, as significant. They just saw it as stories people were telling that weren't of any significance. But... Uh, One folklorist, John Bennett, wrote his collection based on protecting the oral storytelling of the coastal black population, which he considered as the true heart and soul of South Carolina's literary tradition. So Bennett got this story from a local black woman named Armanita Tucker, who said that it rained for 30 days before the mob grew angry and they confronted this doctor. And his tale was called The Apothecary and the Mermaid. That is our story for today, but we will also be mixing in another version titled The Merwoman Out of the Sea from Virginia Hamilton's Her Stories. We just really love a good mermaid story on this podcast is what I'm seeing. Mermaids, selkies, anything underwater. We just, people on Twitter, I mean X as well, everyone goes crazy for a good mermaid tale. And I think that we can never have enough. I want to see mermaids. I want to see merfolk. I want to see selkies and seals and, you know, sea creatures pulling people underwater. I think it's because, like, we have not explored a lot of our oceans. So there's still some level of, like, maybe some of this could be true because we haven't explored the under the sea as much as we've explored, like, the land and stuff. When we talk about the glass mountain, we're like, Psh. We know there's no glass mountain out there. We've checked, like, <laughs> we, we, we've explored pretty much most of our landmass. We know there's none, but, like, under the sea, there could be an ocean kingdom. We don't know. <laughs> Anyways, that's just my theory. No, I think it does come from not knowing, and that's why I think we have so many theories about what's in space and aliens, and that's a whole... I don't want to say storytelling culture, because there is, you know, I do think that there might be aliens. I think there might be more life out there, but... I feel like we're so fascinated with things that we don't have explanations for. And so when you have a coastal town and it rains for 30 days and it feels like the sky is angry, it feels like nature is angry, you want to come up with an explanation as to why. And if we look back at some of the Native American stories we've told, that there are, you know, there are stories where you try and understand why nature is reacting by coming up with a conclusion to it, right? You say, this is why... Um, the gods are angry or this is why the spirits are unhappy or this is why our ancestors are unhappy no matter which storytelling tradition you pick from oftentimes big events come with some kind of disorder some kind of natural disorder Mm. and so here 
we see this story where this woman told this tale of how it rained for 30 days before everyone was so damp and cold and they could never get dry that they grew angry and they looked for a reason why. So, dear travelers, if it feels like it's been raining for 30 days straight where you are from, then join us as we dive into the tale of the Woman out of the sea. On the 3rd of July, 1867, at about half past 10, an ominous black cloud appeared high in the sky and swelled like an angry giant. It covered everything before abruptly swirling down and settling over everyone. Then came the rain that created rivers over the roofs and down the chimneys, the lightning that streaked past the windows, and the thunder that cracked in the silence. As suddenly as it came, the wind died and everything was still except for the constant pattering of rain. Days passed and the endless floods turned every road into a marshland. Cockroaches emptied out of the kitchen walls and into the flood and onto the people. Four, five weeks passed and everyone was constantly on edge with the feeling of dampness and the stench of rot. Everyone knew something was wrong. They had all heard this tale of something drenched and cold that had crawled out of the sea and made its way overland. The dark rumors were spread by wizened old women until one day a hysterical woman screamed out loud, There's a merwoman amongst us, a mermaid. The water will claim us all unless she's put back to sea. Is that really your first instinct when you understand there's a mermaid among you that we have to put her back? Most of their tales of mermaid, it's like people are like, ooh, interesting. This is unique. We should keep them on land or like trap them to be my wife or something. Like, I don't think I recall any previous ones. They're like, no, no, put it back. Put it back. You know, my first thought. <laughs> oh, no. What? I was like, yeah, because those are white people's stories. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, this is interesting. Let's put it in a museum. AKA all of Egypt. Oh gosh. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah, but I'm just like, okay, maybe the rest of the world doesn't have colonizer things, specifically because these are slave stories. Like they came from the slaves. So obviously they wouldn't um, highlight captivity of a creature oh, against gosh. its will. Oh gosh, you're right. Yikes. That's, <laughs> that was my first thought. <laughs> well, I mean, I just like for argument's sake. Um, I do think it is an interesting point to bring up that in most other stories we've read where there's mermaids or there's any magical creature, usually they get caught and captured and used or put on display um, or their power is abused in some way by the wielder. And I do think it's important to highlight that this is an African-American story. So it's not going to have the same beats or the same rhythm as a European one because that's not where it originated. Um, And so it's, I think it's always important to realize where our stories come from. And these stories come from all over. So it comes down to where they're located, what influenced them. And there are lots of cultures where if you see something magical or something spiritual, the, like, it should go back to where it belongs. Yeah. Um, just like you would say, you know, this creature belongs to the skies, this creature belongs to the ocean. And magical creatures specifically, if you see them as belonging somewhere... I think this is another clear thing. If they're taken away from somewhere by force, then obviously their home or wherever it is they came from and the people they came from, they might react quite violently or negatively to having something snatched away from them. Whereas Mm -hmm. when we see the classic tale of something like The Little Mermaid, where she chooses to leave 
we don't really see any kind of natural forces reacting in the same way because it was her choice. And then, of course, when she tries to go back, she is rejected and she is turned into sea foam as punishment. But it's, I think the optics of it depend on which storytelling tradition you're coming from. And specifically here, I think it's, you know, the conclusion is if the sea and the water is unhappy, then the logical thing to do is to appease it. And how do we appease it? Well, if we've taken something from it, we should give something back. Um, And in this case, if they don't give back the mermaid, they will give their lives. Yeah, I do appreciate just like the shakeup from the formula, because I think when I like first read this, I was really anticipating that to continue because that's just the most stories I've heard. Right. So I actually just really appreciate this immediate different gut reaction of, OK, no, this thing needs to go back where it came from. Honestly, when I read because I read the um, I read a couple books actually to pick which one I wanted to use. And there were a lot of contenders. But I remember uh, seeing Virginia Hamilton's Her Stories. This is the collection where the story comes from. And I read through a couple of them. And this wasn't the original one I chose. The original one I chose was called, I think, Annie Christmas. And I ended up reading a whole bunch of the different tales. And they are very unexpected, which I appreciate. And all of them had a little note at the end about where the sources were from and some kind of like allusion to where the tradition comes from or where the stories come from. And so for anyone looking for just fascinating stories that don't follow kind of just what we expect from the traditional European stories, it's not, you know, a surprise that we're used to them because it is Western media that we all usually consume. But one thing we love to do on the podcast, obviously, is to share a wide range of stories and expose people to stories they probably wouldn't have seen naturally. And so if you are looking for those kind of stories, I do recommend Virginia Hamilton's Her Stories. Just fantastic funny there's folk tales there's fairy tales um there's some like you know true tales in there so definitely go read that as well beautiful all right so what happens next (laughs) so that was the story they all believed miserable as they were in their endless plight they felt that if nothing happened soon to free them they would all be drowned and it was no surprise to anyone who to accuse as having been the one to steal the mermaid it was obviously the doctor Everyone knew him, but everyone stayed away from him because he was a doctor of dead things. Now, <laughs> we just had another <laughs> pause, but you may think, you know, what is the dead thing? Uh, why, why would dead things need a doctor? So to actually understand this, we do need to pause this book and open up another. In the original collection written by John Bennett, the doctor was called Dr. Trot. And there are stories about a potential real Dr. Trot that may have actually come from, you know, John Bennett's collection. But there is an entire story of how he created a mermaid hoax to try and win over black customers from the Gulab Root Doctor. However, his plan backfired when a storm came through Charleston and a mob accused him of being the cause and of returning the mermaid, but they could never find it. But that was in Bennett's version. In Hamilton's version, she chose to make her doctor nameless and simply refer to him as the doctor of dead things. As it happens, Bennett also collected a different tale called The Doctor of the Dead. And it was about Dr. Henrik Ringo. And at first, you know, Henrik was a fantastic doctor and surgeon, but he started to become really preoccupied with death and how to comfort those in a miserable grave. And as, you know, most people do when they start to obsess over death, they start to obsess over how to bring people back. And in um, Ringo's case specifically, He met a dead ghostly woman named Helen and he tried to bring her back 
and obviously have failed. You know, these stories, they always end up failing. And he became obsessed with, you know, experimenting and trying to bring things to life. And that's kind of his story. So Hamilton's kind of taken these two tales and mixed them a bit. Maybe as, you know, a tribute to the original story, which is one of the ones that John Bennett is well known for. But that's just what it is. So obviously, people are not going to look too kindly on someone who is messing with the dead and messing with the soul and messing with the process of life and death. And I think that kind of sets the stage of what kind of man would steal a mermaid from the ocean and cause all this havoc. I always find doctors in stories like this to be eerie because mm-hmm. doctors are supposed to be like relying on science and science is obviously evolving and changing all the time as we learn and discover new things so whenever they pop up in stuff like folklore or even fantasy stuff it's like it feels always unnerving because <laughs> either their level of science is not to where it is today or it's like limited to the day but it's also add in with like things that I don't understand so it always feels unnerving like I never know if I should trust any doctors because they're supposed to be one of the smartest people in the room but like they can so easily slip into this creepy like doctor of death shenanigans. I feel like any kind of like fairy tale or folk tale whenever we see like a doctor character it's always just a little bit unnerving in the sense of what is your role are you here to actually you know help them or are you going to do something sinister And in this case, it is, you know, they say they're very clear. He's a very sinister doctor, doctor of dead things. You can't make it more clear. It's true. I will say the one exception to that rule is if the doctor is the main character who's fallen into the other world or is, Mm. you know, the original like point of view character who usually is also confused by it, then those doctors you can usually trust at least because you understand their level of understanding (laughs) of what's going on. But yeah, they're always an interesting uh, character to have in the mix here. So, But I'm glad just straight up, we know this is a sinister doctor. We know where he stands. Yeah, and at least the people know, yeah, this is the one who took the mermaid. They didn't have to go around looking. Um, and this was specifically also helped because his assistant, Aza, told them all of the otherworldly things the doctor kept hidden in his basement. Some of them were half alive, and amongst them, the assistant did claim that the doctor kept a mermaid. And specifically, he said, on the topmost shelf in a bell jar, there was a gorgeous merwoman who had been shrunken down. The people crowd around Aza and asked if she was all right. After all, they did not want her to suffer and die. Sadly, Aza told them that she was covered in green water and her long stringy hair just floated around her miserably. Um, She spent her days banging her little fists against the side of the jar as a goldfish swam around and around her. Now, this story or, you know, this true tale was so believable that everyone instantly thought, yep, this is it, but no one knew what to do. Until one day, it seemed as if everyone got angry all at once. They were tired of it all, of rainwater emptying down their windows and fireplaces, of sitting in their chairs with water up to their knees. And so finally, they raged, and from their rage came a great mob that waited to the doctor's shop. They picked up muck from the streets and threw it at the windows. They shouted and screamed and finally the doctor came out. There's no such thing, he cried. There is no mermaid here or anywhere. You lie, one tall black man shouted. The crowd cried, bring us the mermaid, let her out. The doctor denied it all, but a very small, very brave man swam down to the basement window. He was gone a long time and then came the sound of something breaking. Next, putrid, slithering things swam out of the house and the slime coated the waters where the people stood. 
The small man reappeared and cried breathlessly that he had seen her. She was a beautiful, pitiful thing, and she was indeed in the doctor's house. At least the trope of the mermaid being very beautiful remains intact <laughs> for this tale. You always need a beautiful mermaid. This was all some of the men of the town needed to get together and break down the door. They searched the shop, upstairs and downstairs, and they found lots of hidden places filled with horrible half-living things, but they did not find any mermaids. A tall white man said to them, If you don't leave at once, we'll call out for the army to make you leave. And he spoke to them that way, to the people who had lived in the city all their lives. In the end, the merwoman was never found. Some of the people wanted to speak to the tiny mermaid, to hold her in their palms and to see her. Maybe if the men had just reached up to the top shelf, in the shadows behind jars of things in the doctor's back room, they would have seen the mermaid swimming in her little jar. She'd shrunk down to the size of a baby frog and had become so shriveled that no one would recognize her. However, the rains did soon stop. Perhaps the bell jar was now big enough to suit the tiny mermaid, or perhaps the doctor was so frightened by what he had done they had tossed her out the back where she floated down the flooded steps back to her home. The people knew she caused the rains, but they didn't blame her. They blamed the doctor, but what had been was gone once the rain ended. For weeks, the people washed down the walls and scrubbed and swept out their streets. They tried hard to get rid of the fishy odors, but sometimes on a particularly hot day, you can still smell them. The doctor also closed down his shop and moved away. Maybe he died, but no one could say. Still, we all know that men live and then they die all the time, and maybe more women and mermaids do as well. And that is how the story ends. I really like that they didn't blame the mermaid. They were just, they blamed the doctor because it's like, it's true. The doctor was the source of like what caused it. But I find it's really easy in these tales to just blame the supernatural creature. It's like, how dare you be kidnapped? <laughs> you know? And also more specifically, I think oftentimes it's very easy in these stories to blame the woman um, and mm -hmm. to see the female character as somehow causing the demise or somehow, you know, being part of the reason why something's gone wrong because either she's done something or she's a witch. Um, so, you know, having a witch hunt to go after a woman is not an unknown thing. And specifically, I guess, you know, going after black women as well as being the lowest on the rung to be the easiest to blame, to be the one to take the flack for it. And so the fact that, you know, no one blamed the mermaid and no one had a witch hunt, you know, to go get her and kill her. It was more so to go get her and free her. I really liked how that was the, you know, the message of the story here is that while they knew that she was to blame, they didn't blame her for her own captivity because she didn't choose to be captive and be put in someone's jar. Yeah. Quite a different uh, take on it and like and especially just the whole mermaid idea and I quite like it. I know I feel like every time you read one of the mermaid stories they're always different from each other like specifically as well with the selkie story um, there are many versions where you know she kills her own kids or you know ones where she runs away with them and she looks at the guy when she's running away and she goes ah oh, you were great but I'm going back to my real husband now. So that one you know the selkie stories sometimes have a really nice comedic edge to them. Mm-hmm. And then there's obviously some of the native ones where it's a little bit more sinister, where like, you know, they drag you down. So it's, it's always interesting to see where a mermaid story is going to go because I feel like they never go where you think they are. And they're never the Little Mermaid-esque. Um, even the Little Mermaid, the original Little Mermaid was not Little Mermaid-esque, where it's like the Disney-fied version. Yeah, Disney had created a different vibe of the Little Mermaid. And I feel like that has 
kind of defined mermaid stories just as, in terms mm-hmm. of general pop culture knowledge. But we just keep finding more and more that are just not like that. Like, for better or for worse. Like, I like the original Disney mermaid, but I like all these other takes on these stories. There's so many different points of view on them and so many intriguing different ways of going about it. Yeah, I, I quite love them. And so I was happy to see uh, another one swim up to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and then we also have, you know, the sirens and they're seen as the cause of sailors jumping into the water and drowning. But, you know, sirens were like bird women at first in the Odyssey. So let's not even go there with them. Uh, but one thing you will notice about the story is we had a very specific time. Like it was down to the, it was 10 o'clock when this happened. And, you know, the approximate location of this tale is the coastal area around Charleston in South Carolina. So it's a very specific tale. And I think that adds some legitimacy to the story when you hear a specific time period mm-hmm. and a specific, you know, something must have happened around this time for people to start creating stories around it. And, you know, specifically black seagoing families had to deal with lots of wild weather and strange debris and all of it washed onto shore and they had to figure out what does it mean, what are the messages or, you know, why is this happening? And, you know, I think traditionally people think there aren't a lot of black mermaids and there aren't a lot of mermaid stories outside of Europe. But there are tons of different mermaid stories from all over the world, first of all. But just in this collection, Virginia Hamilton highlights two different mermaid stories, probably originating from the mixed-race communities of the Cape Verde Islands off of the African coast. You have black Portuguese seafarers, as well as, you know, taking elements of traditional African tales. And I will say the other story in this collection is very tragic. And it suddenly, like, it it ends very abruptly. And it's called Mary Bell and the Mermaid. And it's... It's actually quite a sad story. It's along the same lines I found as um, the Chinese Cinderella story where she has the fish, the magic fish that helps her and gives her food and, you know, gives her wisdom. And so it's always interesting to see when you read these stories, where your mind goes of what you can connect it to. But that's another great story to read. Um, Just be prepared. It is, again, unusual to what you're expecting. So always... Um, when you read stories like this, always read the notes, look at the introduction, so you can get some context before you start reading of why a story is shaped the way it is. And again, all of these will be linked on our website with the show notes. So thanks so much for sharing that, Fox. I think that was a very good story, and I'm very interested in these other stories you mentioned, uh, kind of similar takes on them. I don't know when the next mermaid story will come our way, but I'm sure it will be sooner than we think because we just keep finding more of them. If anyone is still looking for any mermaid stories, obviously check out Virginia Hamilton's book. But also if you go to our uh, Twitter slash X at From Enchanted, we have just posted up a list of some modern retellings that are very focused on specifically African-American fairy tales or taken from African stories. And there are some really good modern retellings um, and not just retellings. There are some young adult contemporary stories that still use the supernatural elements, but they bring it to modern day America. And I really like stories that do that specifically for young adults because I feel like it makes it with relatable characters that you can actually relate to. Mm -hmm. For those of people who don't like fantasy stories or who don't like historical fiction, it makes it so that you can still enjoy the tale and the influences without having to read a genre you might not like. But yes, do go check those out. 
uh, there's a post on there as well. Well, that's all for today, dear travelers. But if you do want to hear more from us and find out what our next tale will be, you can join us on any social media account. We are on Twitter, X, Instagram, TikTok, Blue Sky, Mastodon, and literally anywhere where you have a social media account, you will probably be able to find us at Tales from Enchant Forest or at From Enchanted. However, if you are old school like Sparrow, you can email us at talesmeenchantforest at gmail.com. And as always, the best place to find us is always on our website with the same name as our podcast. We'd love to hear your questions, comments, and suggestions. So if you have anything to share, please don't hesitate. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest.